Blog Talk Radio. This is Cale Brown. Now, I didn't play a doctor on TV, but I will prescribe Brandon's Buzz for absolutely anybody who wants to know what's really going on. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. This is Taylor Dane, and you are listening to the one and only Brandon Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. This is Linda Dano. I'm on Brandon's Buzz, and I have to tell you, what a fun hour I just had. Ah. This is a great kid with a wonderful heart and soul. You listen every day. I know I will. Hey, hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you are checking out Brandon's Buzz right now. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big. I'm live and kicking on Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Dave Camaro, and you're going to love buzzing with Brandon's Buzz. Hey guys, welcome back to Brandon's Buzz. I am Brandon. It is Thursday, April 17th, 2014. 10 p.m. in the east, 7 p.m. out west, 9 p.m. here in Texas, and I am thrilled, as always, to be back with you here and back with a pair of magnificent guests tonight. A little bit later on in this episode, I'll be chatting with the ferociously brilliant interior design icon, Nate Berkus. But first up, true story. In 1990, good God, close to 25 years ago, my high school freshman English teacher introduced us, introduced me to what remains to this day one of the most extraordinary pieces of music I've ever encountered, a thrilling six-minute piano composition called Christophori's Dream, an enthralling tune that served as my entree into the work and the career of the brilliant New Age musician David Lons, whose work I have followed with keen interest ever since. Just shy of a year ago, to mark the 25th anniversary of its original release, Lons revisited that seminal work in his canon, and I reached out to him at that time with an invitation to stop by and discuss his extraordinary career and, of course, his most famous work. We couldn't quite get our schedules to mesh at that time, but then late last fall, his publicist reached out to me to let me know that the release of David's latest record, a staggering piece called Movements of the Heart, was imminent and that he'd love to chat with me about it. You know, I left at the opportunity at once, and I managed at last to get David on the phone for a great conversation about life, about love, about music, and about his lifelong love affair with that intense, intimidating box of black and white ivory keys. Well, you know, I, I assume, and it's always dangerous to make assumptions, but I assume, just judging from the, uh, you know, the staggering facility with which you play, that the piano was a part of your life from a very early age. Is that fair? Four and a half is when I started to um, take lessons anyway, and I was already kind of enthralled with the instrument, apparently. Of course, I don't remember any of it, but I, re- <laughs> you know, they had me on drugs early on, you know, but no, just kidding. But I, what I do remember is both uh, the house where I grew up in with my folks, my mom played the piano, and then her mom, my grandma, played the piano. So... I ended up spending a lot of time in both those places, and there was always a piano, so I was always jumping up and apparently very curious and always asking questions, what's this note, what's this, and and my mom would play, and still does occasionally, boogie-woogie on the piano. So as a kid, I went, wow, this is cool, you know, so I, of course I wanted to go, that's what I wanted to do, so 
unfortunately, I was forced to learn the dead guys, you know, for a number of years, the classical guys, and it was not really what I had in mind. So by the time I was 12, I pretty much had fired my piano teacher, and I was off on my own trying to play rock and roll and boogie-woogie and figure out the kind of music that I wanted to play. You know, and then the Beatles happened, and then that really changed my life as far as the way I started. I was writing music when I was 10. I shouldn't say writing. I was composing. I was making stuff up at the piano by the time I was 10. So that's pretty much all I've ever done, Brandon, is just sit at the piano and make stuff up. <laughs> so I should be good by now, I figure. Give me a sense of what you listened to growing up. I mean, I, you know, I, again, I assume sure. from the, the breadth of your work that you were a great fan of the classical composers, but, you know, if you, if you look at a selection of your covers, I mean, you see the Beatles, you see Purple Harem, yeah. uh, Give me a sense of your influences and, and what you enjoyed listening to in sure. your formative years. Classical music, really, the love for that didn't start till I was in my late teens. Then I really started to appreciate what they were doing. But before that, the earliest influences were the music that I heard in my house from my mom, which was Frank Sinatra, Ray Charles, Nat King Cole. Wow. You know, and then unfortunately, some of these uh, Ray Conniff singers and stuff, which is really, I don't <laughs> remember those guys, very corny music. But this was the 50s and 60s, and my mom was kind of a young mom and, and hip, and she was, you know, always buying records, and so we heard a lot of pop music and the hits of the day. My folks really weren't into jazz. My dad was a big Perry Como fan, and I kind of like Perry Como. He's, you know, he's definitely heavy mellow, you know, he's very smooth. Then later on, when I started to figure out I wanted to play rock and roll, then it was Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard and Fats Domino. And then somehow I discovered that I really, really loved, this is before the Beatles, I was already playing these little combos with some of my teenage friends, and we were playing a lot of instrumental rock and roll. We weren't doing so much of the vocals and stuff. And in the Northwest where I grew up, that was there was a lot of garage bands that played a lot of instrumental songs, and but, you know, really with a rock beat. A lot of it was almost like, I don't know if you remember much about surf music. Surf music was real popular in the 60s. Not so much the Beach Boys, but like the Ventures and Dick Dale and that kind of stuff. So I attempted to play surf music on the piano, which was kind of interesting. And then what I usually try to point out, I I talk about this on stage, I say, well, and then thank God the Beatles came around, changed everything, because there was not much call for surf piano. So that was pretty much it for me. And then I loved Henry Mancini. You know, he was Peter Gunn and theme from Romeo and Juliet and the Pink Panther and that kind of stuff. There used to be back, if you go far enough, there used to be actually top 40 radio that had very eclectic selections. You know, you'd have lots of rock and roll, but then you'd have a country western hit, you'd have an easy listening hit, and usually there was an instrumental song that was popular. So it's funny that I kind of cut my teeth on this instrumental music, and then I went through this whole odyssey of, I was a singer-songwriter for many years, and of course, the Beatles and all the English groups really got my attention in my early teens. And then I got into some of the progressive music. And in the 70s, it was all, you know, I didn't want to listen to anybody that was white anymore. It was all Stevie Wonder and Earth, Wind and & Fire and jazz. And, and I wanted to be, I really wanted to be black and I wanted to be blind. <laughs> you know, I kind of thought that would be the way to go. I figured that way I'd really, and if I could really sing, I'd be dangerous. But uh, anyway... I did absorb a lot of different styles of music, especially, you know, in the 70s. And as you say, all the different styles were on the radio at the time. I mean, you could hear anything from Iron Butterfly to Linda Ronstadt to, uh, you know, Two Blue Bells. Yeah. It it was all all right there next to each other. 
It was. I mean, the AM dial had a really eclectic playlist, and then as we got into the late 60s and 70s, FM came on board, and then you could actually stay up late at night and DJs would spin whole albums. So the whole concept of album rock became huge. And, of course, the way we started to think about music, you know, the Beatles doing Sgt. Pepper. and So I feel kind of blessed. I kind of grew up in the golden age of pop and rock music, actually being alive when each Beatle album was released, as opposed to the endless reissues and things, you know. And being 17 when Jimi Hendrix and The Doors and Janis Joplin and that whole era and Led Zeppelin and everything. And pretty much nowadays... I don't really hear anything that isn't really derivative. I don't hear anything yeah. really new. I mean, I guess rap music has changed things a little bit, but even that goes back to the black church. And James Brown, of course, and Otis Redding and Marvin Gaye and the whole Motown experience, to me, is way hipper than what these rappers are trying to do, you know, <laughs> musically speaking. You know, and now they're you know, speaking for their generation, so I can't put them down, and that's important, you know, to have a voice, but... I just wish they'd learn some chords, <laughs> you know, something. You know, anyway. it's so funny to me, too. If, 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 when somebody gets hailed as new or original, like, say, Lady Gaga, if you listen to her yeah. music, you can hear uh, Madonna, you can hear Pat Benatar, you can hear, you know, all the progenitors of her uh, kind of music. Yeah, musically, nothing's going on. But <laughs> the way things are marketed and the way things are done visually and the way they're using technology, of course, that's all different. So because people were not did not have access to those tools. But in a way, I think it made the music better because all the people had, they didn't have sequencers and computers in the studio and they couldn't fix their vocals and they couldn't punch of course. everything in. They had to like, you know, they had to almost do everything live. And then and the, the band was right there, the piano player was right there, everybody was right there yeah. together in the same room. So yeah. you could feed so off of that chemistry. Exactly, and there's really a lot to be said for that, and you can really feel it. Every once in a while, you get a, a new artist. I was real sad, to, you know, Amy Winehouse. I mean, she kind of had a thing going because she was drawing from that Motown vibe, and there's been a few artists. Adele is pretty cool, you know. She can actually sing, and which is nice. And <laughs> But I don't know. There's just a lot of fakery going on in the world of music nowadays. You just don't know what's going on because the computer is kind of manipulating everybody's sounds. I guess like Van Morrison said, you know, the rubber meets the road when, you know, can you perform? You know, can you go on stage with a guitar or piano and just sit there by yourself and sing the fucking song? Or do you have to have all the accoutrements? I don't know. You can tell I'm old and bitter, no. but... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's so funny to me. Listen to what you were saying a while ago about music on the piano. I don't know if you follow popular music all that closely, but several years ago, Queen Latifah did an album of covers, and, and one of the songs that she picked was California Dreamin', and she slowed it down, mm. had the piano beneath her, and, you know, she really found, not that Mamas and the Papas were surf music necessarily, but, you know, she found kind of a bittersweetness and a sadness in that lyric that wasn't really quite evident before in the original version yeah that was actually a pretty vibey song even back in the day you know actually always loved that particular track anyway so you know i stopped into a church i passed along the way i got down on my <laughs> knees and i began to pray i mean that's not happy-go-lucky that's kind of introspective and absolutely you know, someone's yeah someone had too much to drink or someone something <laughs> happened and you know you're or having a else, crisis uh, yeah. yeah so what are you into brandon as far as you know who's the, like the hot is there anyone that's going to save pop music in the future? <laughs> Other than, now, I have to say, I'll back up and say, not going out on a limb too far, I think Prince is the heaviest cat going. 
He can write, he can arrange, he can play, he can dance, he can sing. You know, he produces. The cat does everything. He even, you know, witnesses on your doorstep for, you know, the lighthouse <laughs> and stuff. I mean, he does it all, you know. That cat's deep. Of course, now, he's probably 50 years old or older, so he doesn't really fit into the... He's not a modern pop star anymore. He's more of a classic <laughs> pop star, I guess. I don't know what's going on. There's just so many people making music nowadays, and I, I don't know. It's, I tell you, I, I'm little... a huge fan of a singer-songwriter called Tori Amos. I, you know, I don't know if you yeah, know yeah. her music at all, but, but she's very yeah, yeah. piano-based, and, and she uses the piano in such interesting off-kilter ways in terms of the texture of her music. and, and uh, Right. You know, very much like you, yeah, she was somebody cool. who was born playing the piano. I mean, she was kicked out of the Peabody at four or five, I think, for being too radical. And what she ended up doing with her life and with her art is really incredible, I think. Her drummer's a buddy of mine, Matt Chamberlain. I've worked with Matt sure. a bunch. And so I'm hip to Tori. And again, you know, you're talking about an artist that's probably late 40s, early 50s. And sure. she's very cool. And marches to she's... her own beat, for sure. Yeah. No, she's very cool. I'm always just wondering if there's going to be someone... See, when I was a kid, they were always, they'd say, well, this group is the next Beatles, you know, or this is the next Bob Dylan, you know. And, some and you mentioned Adele. I mean, I think Adele's going to be relevant 50 years from now. I think we're still going to be Yeah, yeah, she's around. good. Yeah, good songwriter, good singing, and to her benefit, she doesn't look real super sexy, which is probably good, you know, because then people can focus on the music. They're not so worried about her taking clothes off. And very smart about off, the way you know. she uses her images and, and uh, you know, very smart about the way she lets her music speak for itself. But, you know, where's the new Aretha? You know, where's the new Dylan? I mean, of course, I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't think in those terms. You know, maybe we need <laughs> different kinds of artists to help lead the way. But, but you know, there, so there are much. people like John Mayer, Alicia Keys. I mean, there are, there are yeah, yeah, they're good. inspiration out there to be found, to be yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. No, they're, both those artists are very, very talented. I guess it's just... The machinery is just so much different than it used to be, you know. So, <laughs> anyway. so tell me about you. What was, what was your big break in the, in the music business? I mean, did you always know that you wanted to be in the music business? I remember the first time the light went on for me, I think I was like 11 or 12, and I saw a picture <laughs> of this piano player playing at some lounge. I went, wow, his name was Mr. Johnny or something, you know. And I looked at this guy and I went, wow, that's what I want to do. I want to play the piano and get paid. But... um I was 13 or 14 when I first started getting paid to play the piano. And then, with the added benefit of girls standing around the piano watching you play, I went, what's wrong with this, you know? <laughs> so early on, I kind of got the bug. And, and then by the time I was 16, I had a really hot little garage band called the Town Criers. And we got into this big battle of the bands in Seattle, 300 bands, and we came in the top ten. So wow. from, then I got signed to Mercury Records a few years later to be in this you know heavy progressive group, and I played on Seasons in the Sun with Terry Jacks. I actually got paid. That was the first time I actually made any money in, in show business. Up to that point, it was you know I'd make enough to buy a sandwich or something, but it was pretty bleak. But the big break really was I started to meditate, and I got more interested in my own introspective nature, which has always been pretty strong. And realized that, you know, maybe I did have a gift and what could I do with it? You know, I mean, why was I wasting my time, you know, just to play music that I wasn't into? And, and that's kind of what got me started on developing the style that I'm known for now. And the rest kind of is history. I, I made sure. my first little solo piano record and sent it out to two. There was only two labels at the time that were really interested <laughs> in this kind of music. It was Wyndham Hill and Narada. 
And sure. I got a call back from the Narada label, I think, seven, eight days later. It was a very quick turnaround, and they loved my music. And they said, we're starting a label, you know, because I thought they were just going to do distribution for me. And they said, we're starting a label, and we've just signed a couple artists, and we really think that you'd fit right in. And apparently I did and became kind of their top artist for quite a few years. So that worked out. I made them a lot of money. I know that. I figured it out one day. But uh, they made at least $10 million off of me. So. Wow. But that was good. No, they, you know, they, being with a major label is great, but there's a lot of trickery that goes on there, too. So It's so funny because we were just talking about this, but, you know, it, it, it amuses me how time and again in popular music we see, you know, the music that's being made and the people who are getting signed to contracts and the whole industry just kind of arranges itself and boxes itself in so tightly sometimes that these left-field artists can break through the seams and blow up. Uh, yeah. Do you have a sense of why your music broke through and made such an impact the way it did and the way it did? Two major things happened. One, the timing was perfect, like I said, because in Los Angeles, in Chicago, in New York, in Denver, in St. Louis, in uh, Dallas, Texas, in Seattle, Washington, there was this whole thing called the Wave or the Oasis. You know, it was this whole conglomerate of stations that were playing basically what was being called New Age music. And it became a phenomenon, you know. It just kind of like how smooth jazz became a phenomenon at radio for a while. And New Wave, before all that, was a phenomenon. So I had written a song called Behind the Waterfall that I think the Wave in L.A. actually inaugurated their station with that song. And it, it kind of unofficially became the first New Age hit single. So that was in 1985, 86. So then a couple of years later, when I put out this record, Christopher's Dream, Two things happened there. I unknowingly tapped into the history of the piano. I didn't even know I was really doing that. I was just trying to pay tribute to the guy that invented the piano. And that song is way more popular now than it ever was. Just for an example, just on my last royalty statement from Pandora, it got played over six million times You know, in the last wow. couple months. Holy um, cow. And that's just one station. So that thing just keeps growing and growing and growing and kids keep discovering it and it's a very popular piece for piano players to, to a lot of kids begin their piano lessons they want to play that song and and then also on that record i wanted to do a song that was always one of my favorites from the summer of love which was a wider shade of pale and through a series of events i was able to actually work with one of the original members of procol harem matthew fisher who played the organ in the original and then on my version so what we ended up doing was all these radio programmers kind of already knew who I was because I'd already had a number of songs that had been very popular at radio for this new format. And then here I came with a single remix of Whiter Shade of Pale, and it bridged the gap. It's like, okay, here's this guy. He's a new age, quote-unquote, new age artist, but he's doing this cool old song. So it was like the first time anyone in the genre had crossed over and done something from a classic rock period in a cover version. Plus, I had Matthew from the original band, so it gave it a little more... I always felt it made it a little more legitimate to have sure. one of the original members as part of it, so it wasn't just a strict cover of a song. So that song broke out really quick, and then, it's funny, every song on that record started to get airplay on these various you know, Wave and Oasis stations. The one song that didn't get played very much was the title track, Christopher's Dream. I think it was too classical for radio, but fast forward 25 years, <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's God, the song, you know, yeah. that's the song, you know, still get actually, the, all, the music on that was very accessible, 
And I think it was the timing with all the radio stations, the fact that I created this iconic song, and then I took a, another iconic song from the 60s and redid that. And all that just kind of turned into this very happy coincidence of things. Uh, talk to me about the inception of that song. I mean, where in the hell does something as perfect as Christopher's Dream even come from? Well, what happened was I had been given this book. I was had been living with this woman in between my first two marriages. And one day she just gave me this book called Passion for the Piano. And I'd had it on my bookshelf for a while. And I just remember one day I just took it down and I was just looking at it. And I had never looked at the very first page. And the very first page, it says, This book is dedicated to Bartolomeo Cristofori, the inventor of the piano. And it was kind of like I was struck by lightning. You know, I just kind of like, sure. first it was like, Oh, someone invented the piano? <laughs> it's like, hello. <laughs> never even thought about it. It had never come up. No one had ever talked about it. It was always there in the living room. You know, I just, what the hell? It's a piano. Um, and then his name was so cool, Christophori. It was like Christ Euphoria or something. You know, I just, so immediately the idea popped into my head, Christophori's Dream. And I just wrote it down. I wrote the title down. I never get titles. Wow. So it felt like a kind of a moment, almost a destined moment for me as a composer. After writing music since I was 10, and this was probably in my early 30s when I wrote that song. And then I just sat down at the piano. I played the opening little measures thinking, oh, this sounds kind of like Moonlight Sonata. And that's cool. That's early piano repertoire. And then I went, well, Christopher was Italian. So I said, well, I want it to sound like a, a cool Italian movie. And I kind of knew it was based on a certain kind of chord progressions that they used in these movies. And so those were the only two elements, Beethoven and Italian movies. So I sketched it out, and what happened was I put it away, and then, I don't know, four, five, six weeks later, my record label called me up, and they said, hey, Dave, it's time for a new record. What do you got? <laughs> and I kind of panicked for a minute because I didn't really have anything, and I went, oh, yeah. And I thought, yeah, I'm working on this record called Christopher's Dream. And they went, ooh, cool, great title, that sounds good. Absolutely. So then I had to go back and actually finish the song, you know. And I'd had the idea for some of the other pieces. But anyway, that's how that song came about. A quick little flash of lightning from a book and the pressure to create a record because I was under contract, so that was a good thing. <laughs> it forced my hand. <laughs> you know, so. uh, a few years ago there was a, there was a fabulous song called If I Die Young. Uh, uh -huh. A country band called The Band Perry did that, and... You know, they, at, at one of the country award shows or something, they won Song of the Year or Single of the Year, one of the big awards for that. And, uh, you know, she said, when she accepted the award, she said that she always felt that, and I'm paraphrasing here, I don't have the exact quotation, but, you know, she said she always felt like that song was destined to exist and, you know, destined to be in the world and that she was simply grateful that she was the person holding the pen when that song arrived. And, you know, right. I remember myself, I know that, I know that feeling of a paragraph or a passage or a sentence just you know, dropping wholesale onto the blank page. And, and, you know, some part of me suspects that you must feel that way even a little bit, like that song was fated to exist and it just happened to come to you. It did have that kind of bigger than life. It's beyond what my imagination probably would have come up with on its own. Somehow, whatever unseen forces that are around, especially when you're being creative, you, I think you open yourself up to those energies and whatever strange alchemy works out there in the world, you know. Yeah, exactly. And what's really amazing for me is that song has had such a powerful impact on so many people. And when you play a show now, do you even dare consider not playing that one? I'd get hung up by the thumbs if I didn't play that song, man. 
I would not get out of the auditorium alive, you know. Yeah. I always say that, you know, I don't play it too soon in the show. I don't want people leaving, you know. But, no, definitely, and I enjoy playing the song. It, it is a beautiful piece of music, and I've played it for 25 years, and I still love to play it. It's so funny. There was, there was a, there's an Irish singer-songwriter named David Gray who broke mm-hmm. through several years ago with a song called Babylon, and uh, my beloved and I saw him in 2005 at the Fillmore in San Francisco, and he saved Babylon for the very last song of the second encore. And, you know, by the time he got to those opening chords, there was a palpable kind of rumble in the room that if he wasn't going to play the song, he was going to get mobbed. And you yeah, know, right. it's so funny. It's so funny that when everybody recognized the opening chords of that song, there was just a roar that exploded in the room. I mean, everybody was on the exact same page, the exact same wavelength. They wanted to hear that song. He knew he yeah. wanted to hear the song. It was a great kind of uh, powerful moment to witness. There's a couple artists I've heard of that won't play their biggest songs. You know, they hate Absolutely. playing them. I don't know if you remember Arlo Guthrie. But back in the 60s, he had this song called Alice's Restaurant, which was a huge hit for the hippie generation. So all the old hippies come out to see him, and he won't play the damn song. (laughs) And then Van Morrison, of course, refuses famously to ever play Brown Eyed Girl because he never made any money on the song. Wow. But, um, yeah, I think that song for me, I'm just, thank God, you know, it wasn't Wooly Bully or something funky (laughs) like that. You have to play every night, you know. So <laughs> I, I or you have somebody to... like Billy Ray Cyrus who breaks through with a novelty hit like Achy Breaky Heart and all of a sudden he's yeah. stuck, you know, singing Achy Breaky Heart for the next 30 years of his career. Yeah, you know, I made a point of never hearing that song. There's a few <laughs> songs, I've never heard the Macarena all the way through, I've never heard Achy Breaky funny. Heart, and it turns out Billy Ray Cyrus friended me on Facebook one day, so maybe I should go back and listen to his song, but oh, no, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> So tell me about the new album, Movements of the Heart. That's a, that's a, speaking of gorgeous titles, that's a really gorgeous title. Tell me what it's about and where that came from. I'm glad you pointed out the title because the album, right up until the last minute, was going to be called Love's Return. And Which the is the name of the based, first song on the album, yes? Yes, that was going to be yeah. the title track, the lead-off track. And I was dealing with the artwork and dealing with you know getting all the final things together. And Christine, my beloved, she said, you know, I haven't said anything, but I just think that Love's Return, it's a beautiful song, but I don't think it's... She was feeling something kind of weird about the title, and I very rarely have ever given in to anyone's creative input when it comes to titles. Usually they're like sacred ground for me. You know, I create a title, and then the work kind of revolves around it. And But she's very smart and actually a brilliant composer and singer in her own right. So I just said, okay. So we batted it around for a while. And I gave in and said, okay, if I don't come up with anything better, Love's Return sticks, you know. And I don't even know exactly how the title came about, but just in that pressure of the last moment and opening up to kind of more of the creative willingness to be open for something else. And then here comes this title, Movements of the Heart. And that album cover ended up reflecting that. I don't know if you saw the album cover, but it's music that's being kind of blown off of a music stand. It's really cool. And... To me, the title kind of spoke about what I had been going through specifically, like in the months around writing and recording the album, because I was in the middle of this very passionate love affair, and I was going through a breakup of a very long marriage. And all that, of course, is great fodder for the creative process, you know. Of course. But don't try this at home. It's not for the weak of heart or the faint of heart, as they say, because, man... If you don't mind just not never sleeping and, and, you know, just being kind of a wreck, 
but it was good. It was <laughs> it was really great, and it, you know, I ended up creating a lot of music at midnight, actually, like on full moons, and and writing, you know, volumes of poetry and being way, way deep into the muse through the whole process. So the movements of the heart really spoke as you know the perfect title for what I'd been living through, you know, around the creation of the record and. Sure. So to answer your question, that really the record in, in many ways is a reflection of and, and inspired by this one particular relationship I'm in now. But beyond that, it's actually the first record I'd made in quite a while where I didn't have any cover songs. The four and a half years previous to that, I was totally hung up in Beatleland, paying back, you know, I felt like I needed to pay back my mentors. Sure. And I went a little too far over the line. You know, I was just going to do one record, and I ended up doing three records, two books, a DVD, and like half a dozen music videos. So the therapist finally told me I was done, and no. But uh, so that, there was that, and then even the record before that was called Painting the Sun, and that, that was all original, but I had a cover song. Of, there was a song in the 60s called Turn, Turn, Turn by the Birds, and I ended up covering that. So it was nice just to really... Go back and you also went back and you also went back and reimagined Christopher's Dream earlier this year for a I did that project. right I right I did yeah. that and then I did another I did a Christmas record called Joy Noel and again I'm you know even though it's with Christmas music there's a lot of room for adding your own material into it because most Christmas songs are you know really just a verse and a chorus but still having yeah going back and doing those two records again I felt like I was still not really in my total creative composer mode. I was more arranging and doing things from the past. So this record was really fun and invigorating just to be strictly into my own, back into my own music again. Yeah. You know, the, the, uh, the, uh, the scope of your discography and your output is just incredible. I mean, it's amazing. Do you, are, are you always... Are you always writing? Are you always creating or constructing piano riffs? I mean, is it something that, that you're able to turn on and off, or are you always working on something, even if only mentally? I can't turn it off, Brandon, unfortunately. It's just, every time I sit down, I write something. You know, it's just, it's insane. <laughs> Christine has been following me around for the last three, four months now with an iPad, recording <laughs> everything I write. And wow. I've never done that. I've always just, I usually just, well, I'll sit down and play something, and they'll go, wow, that was cool. And then, you know, I try to sit down and play it again. Of course, it's gone. So I've captured a lot of these ideas. They're like little sketches. So I just go back. and So currently, I'm not necessarily working on anything, but I'm continuing to do these impromptu sketches. I am working with Christine. She just released her first record called Notes from a Journey. It's beautiful, beautifully produced, and we're starting to perform a little bit together during my shows, and we're starting to write together now. So we probably are going to end up doing the next record may be kind of a collaboration between the two of us. Oh, wow, okay. Yes, she's kind of like, you know... You've done that kind of thing before, yes? Well, I've collaborated with other instrumentalists. I've never collaborated with a vocalist. I mean, she's a composer, but she's a... People compare either to Sarah Brightman or they compare to Enya or, you know, she's kind of in that realm. So conceptually, we're talking a lot between the two of ourselves about what we want to create. And, you know, we're kind of the sunny and share of new age now, you know, so we're just trying to... <laughs> we're just trying to figure it out. Anyway. And have you ever considered doing something like... I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't want to mention a rival here, but Jim Brickman. I mean, he, he's great. He does, these, he does these instrumental pieces, but then every once in a while he'll team up with a vocalist 
like, uh, you know, a Martina McBride or Olivia Newton-John or somewhere, someone of that yeah. ilk and, you know, create a great pop song. Have you ever considered right. going down that avenue or, or not really? Well, you know, not so much, not in terms, not consciously trying to do that. I had a manager, Bill Leopold. He manages Dave Cause and he manages Melissa Etheridge and, he was the guy behind Maroon 5, and Bill's really a sharp guy, and he steered me away from that. You know, He says, then you'll just be the piano player behind the singer. People yeah. will just think of you more as this person behind the singer. But now with this situation I'm in now, working with Christine, it'd be something from the heart. It wouldn't be kind of this... To me, Brickman is very calculating. You know, His whole career is very calculated, and and that's cool. I mean, a lot of guys like to do it that way, and, you know, he's smart. I'm not re- so much into the manipulation of the marketing. To me, it needs to start someplace really musical and really high energy. And then from there, you know, you can do what you have to do with it to get it out to the folks, you know. You know, uh, they say that to be a great writer, you have to be a great reader. Do you have to love great music to make great music? Is that, does it do just go hand in hand? You know, I don't know. There's a lot of these idiot savants. I mean, look at Dylan, man. He actually, to his credit, if you read his autobiography, he basically devoured a ton of great, great literature before he really started to try to write. So he only knows about three or four chords. Of course, he was working in the folk idiom. But I think it's very positive to be open to all kinds of musics to get you know, a well-rounded approach. Unless, you know, you're just doing something, a real narrow focus, like if you're a blues artist, you're probably not going to be listening to John Coltrane, you know, or Miles Davis. You're going to just kind of stick close to the bone, you know. I know from myself, I've really dipped my toe into every genre of music I could find. I played a lot of country, I played a lot of jazz, I played a lot of funk, lots of the garage band stuff early on in my life, and course i had you know enough classical training to kind of get me started as a uh, piano player so i think all that's been very helpful but the thing that's probably helped me the most really is my ability to focus as an artist as opposed to i don't you know it's weird i don't think of myself as a piano player i'm an artist you know and i think about life and music in terms of how it affects there's a lot of musicians that are they play music for music's sake, and really all they want to do is impress the other musicians around them, you know. Sure. And my feeling, not to be, it's just going to sound kind of weird, I write music for the feminine side of the listener, you know, the softer side, the side that's intuitive, and not sure. so concerned with the intellectual or technical aspect of the music, but more open to the emotional, spiritual the thing that moves you about a song, a lot of times it's not very complicated. Some of the best songs are very simple. Look at Amazing Grace or something, you know, or a song like that. So simple. Even if you look at something modern like, say, uh, I Will Always Love You, the Dolly Parton song that Whitney Houston, you chip. Yeah. That's a very simple lyric. It's a very, there's nothing to that song. But yet when you listen to somebody do something extraordinary with it, I mean, it's, it's, uh, right. it's miraculous. And I think you have more of a chance of connecting with the general public or the general listener if your music isn't super complicated and technical and intellectual. Most people don't really, they don't hear music the way musicians hear music. That's the thing. I've always tried to figure out, how does someone really hear a song? I'll listen to a pop tune. I'm listening to the bass player. I'm listening to what the bass drum is playing, the different patterns. You know, I'm listening to the chord changes. 
the last thing I listen to usually is the lyrics. Eventually I'll go, oh, okay, it's got a good lyric, but really I'm sure. listening to the rhythm of the lyric as opposed to the actual words. Occasionally if the song is very emotional, of course, I get pulled into the story, but sure. most people don't, you know, when they listen to a song, I'm going, well, what are they really hearing? That's always been real fascinating for me to try to figure out how people perceive music because you as a writer, you know, people, when they read, they're not looking at the way the sentences are constructed and is that iambic pentameter or what is, what's this guy doing here? Is this a, you know, they're just getting a vibe on the story and whether or not it's written very well or not, they probably don't care. I guess that's what I try to do with my music, you try to construct things that are simple but yet convey a certain feeling and then hopefully present it in a way that's crafted in a way that it, it holds up through repeated listening. Of course, you know, the, the other side of that is somebody like Joni Mitchell or somebody like Dylan, you mentioned Dylan, who write these yeah. very dense lyrics, or even somebody like, say, Jim Steinman, who wrote all of Meatloaf's uh, material, who believes uh-huh. evidently that, that every syllable of air needs to be filled up with a word. It's interesting how you say keep it simple and keep it kind of intellectually not so dense, but then if somebody can do that well, then that's kind of the counter-argument to that philosophy, I guess. But if you look at both Dylan and... Joni Mitchell and Meatloaf or whatever. Well, maybe Meatloaf's different. It's kind of a different thing. But those two artists in particular, their simpler songs were their hits. Those are the songs people will remember, you know. Now, if you're into those artists, then you're going to go deep into their catalog and you'll find out that, yeah, they're pretty deep thinkers. But the things that the average person relates to are more simple than not. So, (laughs) At this point in your career, how do you... How do you view your job? I mean, is your job to to make the music you make regardless of whatever audience may be out there waiting for it? I mean, uh, how do you how do you see what you do at this point in your career? Unfortunately, the part of my career that I don't like is the fact that I'm on the fucking computer all the time now dealing with <laughs> Facebook and emails and all the minutia of trying to manage your career, you know. But when it just comes to the music, my job is just to continue to compose and visualize what it is in life that I'm trying to express. And my chops are way up. <laughs> I'm playing really well, which is great, you know. Maybe it's because I'm playing some of the same material for the last 25 years. By now, it should be good. But, uh, no, and I'm always, I, I try to always introduce new music into my performances. I just hope we pull out of this whole phase of, the way society is right now because it's kind of it's kind of karaoke you know there's it's a lot of fakery going on pop singers that can't really sing and write and television shows that are based on unfortunate (laughs) trailer trash (laughs) but i guess it's what people want i don't know why they want it i wish they would look a little deeper you know but meanwhile maybe there is a lot of people that are and we just don't hear about them because they're busy (laughs) trying to um (laughs) <laughs> get to the next plane or something. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> but, you know, talking about talking about the business side of your business, I mean, you mentioned Pandora yeah. earlier. You know, the digital right. revolution and the technological yeah. boom that has blown the door wide open. Uh, and, you know, all these different avenues for releasing and consuming music, be it satellite radio or, you know, right. MP3 players or digital downloads or streaming, whatever it is. Has all of that helped artists like you or hindered you in terms of getting your music into the hands of interested fans? Well, at first, it was a total disaster, just a total fucking disaster for the entire music industry. You know, the record stores are gone, the, there's, the stereo shops are gone, radio stations are all computerized, everybody was ripping everybody off. Lowly, 
over the last, I'd say, couple of years. iTunes is kind of helping a little bit, and those kind of, you know, so it is, for the honest consumer, it's made it really cool. You know, you can go, you can say, wow, there was this album I had back in 68, and I, you can go back on the Internet, and you can download it, and you go, wow, that's cool, you know. Then the other the downside of that is YouTube. You can listen to anything for free, music-wise almost, so that's kind of a drag for the artist. It's cool for the consumer because you can go, oh, there was a song I wanted to hear. And then you just you get your quick fix and you don't have to actually buy it. Sure. But the other thing that's happening that's been really great that I've seen, my performance royalties on radio and the Internet have skyrocketing now, like with Pandora and eMusic and all these music services and the fact that they can track through BMI and there's an organization called Sound Exchange. They can actually track, I don't know if they're watermarks or how they do it, you know, they can track the consumers and the the plays. And luckily for me, solo piano, at least my solo piano music, has become very popular on the Internet. So I'm getting millions and millions of plays, and it's actually starting to add up to some nice money, you know. So wow. that part of it has been good, you know, because the radio obviously for any genre was, will change. But it's the first time in history where you can't just walk into a store that sells music and get whatever you want, you know. It's just, you know, you have and to... The, and, and the stores that do sell music have completely, have shrunk their music departments to almost nothing. I mean, you, you walk oh, yeah. into, uh, you know, one of the box stores like Best Buy or Target, and the music section, right. which used to be sprawling inside the store, is now right. just a whack or two. Yeah, but now it's all about games and DVDs, you know, so that's the yep. latest thing, and... And because uh, kids can figure they can you know, they can download their music for free, why buy that? You know, <laughs> we are kind of in a transition. So at some point, I've had people in the music business tell me that it'll get to a point where there won't be anything physical anymore that you can buy, and you won't need to because you'll have multiple devices: computer, television, radio, phone. and and your phone, and and all these devices. So if you want to download an album, you can buy it. For you can listen to it, you can stream it once or twice or whatever for a fee, or if you want to have it for a week, or if you want a license to have it forever, then it'll be at every, any device for the rest of your life. You can just go and you, you can listen to it. You won't be able to make a copy of it, but you won't need to. So that, you know, the whole digital master has to go away eventually, I think, because once, it, you know, once a consumer has a master recording in their hands, then basically you're you're asking for trouble, you know. So we'll see. We'll see how that all shakes out. And But meanwhile, the people that are really hip can play live, and that's that's where I think I really enjoy being able to be a performer. And their music is still fairly vibrant in terms of sales. You know, people want... It's almost like they want a souvenir of a show, you know. I don't sell T-shirts, you know. I just sell music. So... People, a lot of my, at least my fans, they want the CD or they want. I have a lot of piano players that come to these shows, and I have a million books out through Hal Leonard. And you know, they usually want to have that, and they want it signed. So they, there is that connection to the performer that you can't get on the internet, you know, so much, sure. or you can't get at Starbucks just sitting there, you know, on your phone. <laughs> but <laughs> and you know, as you say, with things like Facebook and Twitter now. Uh, largely, we are entertaining ourselves. It's kind of a karaoke world, you know, and 
everybody and his dad can make a CD or they can <laughs> film a stupid movie on their fucking phone and, and yeah. you know, and a lot of people get lucky, you know, doing that one or two times. But what I crave are the people that are really crafted their work, you know, really great directors and writers and musicians. And it's one thing to be kind of raw and cutting edge, but after a while that gets, it's like puppy love or something it's, or junk food. It's cool at first. But it yeah. doesn't really feed your soul for very long, you know. <laughs> so tell me what's yeah. on the horizon for David Land. I assume you're going to be touring or at least doing some shows in support of the, the uh, movement yeah. of the heart. Well, Christine and I have started a home concert series. She has a beautiful home here in upstate New York. So we've actually Saturday night's our second show. It's sold out. And... Uh, you know, we're bringing folks in and we're doing a, more of an intimate show. We can only get like 40, 50 people in the house. So we're doing a, a series of those. And then I'm off next week to the West Coast where I do a three, four times a year. I do this event it's called Four Days with David Lons. And it's kind of a, an extended workshop slash I do private lessons. I can't deal with a whole lot of people. It's like usually less than 10 people. But they'll come. And then we do these all day. You know, we, we we sit around and talk about music and composition, and I deal with people at whatever level they're on musically or from a composing standpoint. A lot of times I get a chance to work with young teenagers, too, who are just getting started in composing. So it's great because I can kind of light these kids up, you know, and many of these folks walk away from these workshops composing music for the first time. It's great. And then also within that workshop, we open it up to the public, and then we I do a full blown you know concert along with these kind of private kind of one on one sessions. So that's coming up next week, and then yeah, then Mexico is on the horizon. What else? I don't know. That's that's kind of it, you know. Usually in my spring, the spring is when I kind of I try to jump into another more of my creative time. So I don't know really what's happening past springtime, but. Just the same stuff, you know, writing, composing, being brilliant, you know, and uh, <laughs> and, and trying to find a, the best do you have a new record can... kind of itching at your soul already, or, or are well, you taking a you break? Well, you know, actually, in the, in the... yeah, well, Christine and I have a couple of things we're talking about doing. She's very interesting. She's originally from Norway, and she sings in five different languages. So we're thinking wow. of doing some sort of a holiday-tinged album, just the two of us, where she's, you know, we can address not only English, but she sings in Norwegian, she sings in French and Italian. So we're thinking of doing something interesting around that. And we also kind of have more of a kind of an improv slash kind of a healing record that we want to do that someone can put on and go deep into a more of a kind of a trancey kind of music. Then there's some pop music we're working on together. We're, you know, writing words to some of these songs. And so I don't know. There's just a lot of, right now there's just a lot of stuff. And I just hope, now that I've got Movements of the Heart out, I'm hoping to take at least next year and focus on that record as much as possible as far as my live performances and stuff because I'm really into this. I'm into the music now. So I've been enjoying playing that. So I'm not really excited about one particular thing, but just a lot of different possibilities, I guess. 
And a million thanks to the sensational Mr. David Lons for a fantastic conversation and to his brilliant publicist Lydia Sherwood for her extreme patience with me as I got this installment of Brandon's Buzz ready for air. It's been several months since we had this conversation, and she's been very patient with me in terms of waiting for it to hit the air finally. So here it is, Lydia. Thank you very much. Uh, one more time, the record is called Movements of the Heart, and you can find it at Amazon, at iTunes, wherever your favorite music is sold. So go get it at once. As you might have come to expect from this man and his music, it is fiercely lush, it is eternally inviting, and it's well worth your time and energy, if I do say so myself. Thanks so much, David, and I hope to chat with you again very soon right here on Brandon's Buzz. Back in two shakes, everybody, with the incredible Nate Burkus. So hang tight. If you've turned on a television even once in the past, say, decade, there's no doubt that you at least know about my next guest. The enormously talented Nate Berkus shot to fame in the early aughts when his Chicago-based design firm was contacted by The Oprah Winfrey Show to do a quick small space makeover on a tiny, tiny apartment. The end result was simply extraordinary, and Nate was such a natural dynamo on camera that there was no question to those of us who were watching, myself included, that we were witnessing the birth of a major star right before our very eyes. Fast forward to 2014, and Nate Burkus is friggin' everywhere, people. He's hosted his own daytime talk show. He pops up on other people's talk shows. He's got a massively successful, ever-expanding line of home decor accessories available at every Target store in this country, and he's now moving behind the scenes as the creator and executive producer of a terrific, brilliantly inspiring NBC reality competition series called American Dream Builders. And I managed to wrangle Nate in here to the buzz for a few precious minutes a couple of weeks ago to discuss the impetus behind the series and to give us a sneak peek at where it's all headed. I know you hear this all the time, but I am your biggest fan, and this is a unique thrill for me to speak to you this morning. I appreciate you giving me a little bit of your time. It's my pleasure. We're talking about this American Dream Builders. You know, I watched the premiere of this thing last Sunday night, and it was so interesting. And, you know, I could kind of suss out elements of it that I imagine that you wanted your talk show from a couple of years ago to be like, but couldn't quite figure out how to make it work in that particular format. Am I wrong to assume that the impetus or the inspiration for this show was kind of born back then even a little bit? No, you're absolutely right. You know, it was interesting for me because hosting a daytime talk show, I realized very early on that I'm not particularly well suited for that format. And I love being out in the field. I love witnessing these transformations. I love being, you know, in people's homes and seeing how things can be changed and renovated and rebirthed and reborn, I guess. And it was so great to watch these 20 homes through the course of 10 episodes on on American Dream Builders be completely restored and brought back to life and beautifully designed and beautifully crafted. And I was out of a studio, so it was great for me to to be able to walk around and, and, and be involved. You know, the way you were back in the old days with Oprah and, you know, going out to different people's homes and, you know, kind of putting on the gloves and the hard hat and and being part of the experience. 
Absolutely. Well, you know, this in this in in this scenario as executive producer and host and judge of this new show, I actually couldn't give them any advice. It couldn't involve myself in the actual process. I had to sit and sure. trust that these 12 people that I handpicked to be part of the competition would amaze me and wow me and wow the audience as well with their creativity and I'm really just happy and so proud of of the work that they accomplish. You know, I, I'm one of these freaks who happens to think that Celebrity Apprentice is the most entertaining show on television when it's in season. And, you know, we don't get one of those this year, but this show fills that void quite nicely with the teams and, you know, the the project managers, the site managers, and the different tasks and what have you. Were you conscious of that when you set out with this, conscious of the idea that there was a, a vacuum on primetime TV that you could help fill? Absolutely. I mean, there's been a there's a vacuum actually that I think this show fills in lots of ways. I mean, we're bringing design back on television in a brand new way. It's all about high level inspiration and creativity and ideas and resources and the designers get to work with, you know, what they normally work with. They're all very established in the industry and so they're used to working with antiques and vintage and one of a kind things and finding the perfect piece for each space and they do that on this show over and over. But the competition is really interesting to me as well because you know, it is a very inspirational show, and at the end of the hour, you see the families react when they get to see their homes again, and they, they get to move back in and, and see their homes for the first time. But there's a ton of drama, just like on Apprentice, throughout the episode. Sure. The difference, though, with this show is that these are all artists. They're creative people, and they're not fighting because they, you know telling somebody that they're, they have, you know, a big butt or you took my boyfriend or whatever it is that we see a lot on reality TV. They're fighting because they think their ideas are the best ideas. And I, I love the passion behind that. But, you know, it's, it's so funny because there are still uh, massive egos involved, even though we don't necessarily know these people, uh, you know, from prior projects. There are still massive egos involved because you can imagine that everybody in the show knows of everybody else's work. Absolutely. And you know what? Here's the truth. These people are, are, are award-winning designers and home builders. They've got books out there on the market. They're very well known in their, in their own parts of the country. And most importantly, they're used to being the boss. So you take 12 people who are used to running the show, what they say goes, and it's their way and, or no one else's way. And they're not challenged in that way in their careers. I mean, they work with clients every day who have opinions that they you know, have to contend with and they have to work with. But you know, in terms of being divided into teams, you've got people who absolutely believe that their vision for the space is the only way to do it. And they will go to bat for that vision, and they do over and over. It's, it's, really, it's really interesting. I mean, the truth of the matter is, is that people fight. We fight, you know. So we turn the cameras on, and what happens, happens. And, you know, the great thing about that vision is sometimes it turns out beautifully like with the kitchen table made from the hardwood floor, and then sometimes it turns out to be a mess like the vanity that was made from the – the uh, workbench that ended up just being the a half piece of workbench uh, in the garage. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's funny because you know you you see who works and you see who doesn't, and you see what ideas come to fruition in a really beautiful way, and and you see what falls short, which makes it actually very easy for me to judge. I was nervous about judging other people's design work because, as we all know, design is subjective. I may love something, and you may think sure. it's awful or vice versa. So what was interesting, though, is that because of the level of quality that all of these people are working in, when you see something like that, 
uh, vanity with drawers that don't open because they ran out of time or they didn't do it correctly, it's very glaring that they're not working on the same level as the other people in the competition. So it made judging actually kind of fun for me, if I can admit that. You know, it was just like, okay, you're going home. (laughs) You know, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but I'm speaking to you in my pajamas in bed, and I'm swaddled in my Nate Burkus collection comforter, and you know I look over at the shelf, and I look over at the shelf, and I see my Nate Burkus collection gazing ball, and I look over at the thing and see my Nate Burkus throw pillow, and uh, you know the Nate Burkus storage box, and I was at Target the day before yesterday, and I swear to Jesus, I grabbed the Nate Burkus file folder set. Uh, please tell me that your collection of decor accessories for Target is as much fun for you as it is for us, and and please tell me this partnership with you and Target will go on forever and ever and ever. You know what? I hope it goes on forever and ever. It's uh, it's a long-term thing. It's, I don't just do one collection and that's it. I constantly refresh it. So there's new things on the store floor all the time at Target, but it absolutely is a blast for me to design the collection and come up with objects and items that I think people can live with and work with and decorate with, with things that they already own. And I love seeing all the pictures on Twitter and Instagram of how people use things in their home. It's fascinating. But, I mean, it's, it's, I love doing it. I love doing it. It's, it's, um, you know, my friends tease me when we travel because they're like, Nate, not every inlaid floor of a cathedral we're visiting needs to be a fabric on the top of someone's bed. I'm like, I think you're wrong. Yeah. I'm going to make this. I'm going to. I'm going to take this pattern and do something cool with it. So you know, it, it's kind of now become the way I think. Like I see someone with a great bracelet on, I'm like, that should be a box. <laughs> and tell me the truth. Are you a Target shopper? Do you step in? Oh, and, well, and, uh, of course. Yeah, of course. I mean, I grew up in Minneapolis. I mean, that is Target Town and where Target's based. So it's kind of a funny full circle moment for me to see my photo and see my products in the store. It's where I got my school supplies and my Halloween costumes and all of that stuff. Well, you know, I, I don't want to turn super serious here, but before I let you go, you know, people always talk about television and the power of it, and, you know, rightly so. I mean, you know, Joe Biden recently created a whole political thing when he talked about will and grace and, you know, its effect on the national opinion of gay rights and you know, people talk about Ellen, Melissa Etheridge, and, you know, uh, you may not necessarily embrace the role of role model, but do you consider yourself a role model for being so open about your life and your, your, uh, you know, your sexuality and your relationships? I mean, do you consider yourself – you may not necessarily like that word role model, but do you consider yourself some sort of uh, powerful example? You know, I, I, I don't consider myself that, but I know that there has been an effect on the, you know – public consciousness. And the way that I know that is through feedback that I've gotten from people that I don't know. And for instance, my fiance, Jeremiah, and I were featured in the new Banana Republic campaign, which was something we thought was like a cool thing. And why not? Why wouldn't we do that? It sounds like a lot of fun. And we were photographed by this amazing photographer. But we got hundreds, thousands, really, of tweets about the campaign, about the picture. And one of them was a little girl standing in front of the window on Fifth Avenue in New York City. And she said, look, Daddy, it looks just like you and Daddy. And, you know, there's moments like that for me where I'm like, listen, I'm just going to go out there and do what I love to do and be the best person that I know how to be. But if that is the kind of message that, you know, everyone deserves the same rights and we really no one really is different, regardless of your race or your sexuality or anything, if somebody can take that away from the choices that I've made in my career, I think that that's a wonderful thing. Sure. Well, I tell you what, I think you're amazing, and I so appreciate a little bit of your time this morning, and best of luck with American Dream Builders. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. Appreciate it.
seriously, y'all, that wasn't a joke when I called myself Nate's biggest fan, and I can't even thank him enough for popping in here for a few minutes of delicious conversation. The show, once again, is called American Dream Builders, and it airs Sunday nights on NBC. Check the listings and check it out. If you're like me and you miss Celebrity Apprentice something fierce this season, you might just find that Builders fills that void pretty nicely. As for me, that's a wrap. One more episode of Brandon's Buzz in the can. If you're listening, you already know how to find the show, clearly. But in case you don't, three places online, blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz is really home base for this show. From there, you can see what's coming on the show, what is on the show, what's been on the show. You can leave comments. You can send emails to me. It truly is Mission Control for Brandon's Buzz. Again, it's blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. You can also find me at my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. There at the top of any page is a blue button marked radio. Click that button. That takes you to a full radio archive. Every episode of this show listed in the radio archive at Brandon's Buzz. This is episode number 96. This and all previous 95, all available in the radio archive at Brandon's Buzz. And I encourage you to check them out. Uh, I'm biased, I know, but there's some pretty great stuff in there. Uh, I'm also on iTunes, guys. I'm on iTunes right next to David Lons. Just type Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes Music Store search box. Scroll down to the podcast section. Click on My Puzzle Piece logo. That will take you to all episodes. You can subscribe to the show and have new episodes automatically download to your library the minute they're uploaded to the store. Or you can pick and choose and uh, you know find individual old episodes to download as podcasts for playback on the device if you're choosing. The podcasts are in MP3 format, and so any device, your phone, your iPod, whatever plays MP3-style uh, recordings, will play these podcasts, and you can download them from the iTunes Music Store. I'm on iTunes, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook. Google the words Brandon's Buzz, or type the words Brandon's Buzz into the search engine of your choice, and I assure you something will pop up that points you in my direction. And as always, I appreciate you guys coming in my direction. I appreciate you guys finding me and listening to me. And as always, I hope you continue finding and listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, everybody out there. This is Eileen Kristen, and I have just been on Brandon's Buzz. This is a great show and a very sophisticated mind. So spread the word, Brandon's Buzz. This is Claire Massey from Tammy Show, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Great guy, great show. Check hey it out. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so if you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it. Baby, when you live on a street of dreams. Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon's Buzz, the place to be. Hi, everybody. This is Nicholas Walker. Merci à vous tous. Écoutez Brandon Buzz sur Blog Talk Radio. Bonsoir et à très bientôt. <laughs>